0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Asian Americans. I am your host, Jerry Wan. We are today joined at the front by our producer, Patrick Armstrong. And uh, going forward, Patrick is going to join me on the intros as we talk about our thoughts on the episode and, uh, you know, give you personal updates and just, uh, you know, thought it'd be nice to uh, bring a different voice to our show. And so welcome to episode 167, whether you've been with us the entire time or whether this is your first time joining us. And Mike sent you. Welcome, and uh, we're just so excited to share this conversation uh, with Mike Kim, uh, a dear friend of mine, one of the foremost experts in the personal branding space, uh, Wall Street Journal best-selling author of the book, You Are the Brand, and just somebody who is very, very well known in the speaking space and in the branding space, and an honor to call him a friend and to share this conversation that I had with him uh, live and in person from LA a couple of weeks ago when he had joined us. Patrick, what did you think about our episode?
1: I really enjoyed it. I think that it comes through that you guys are sitting in the room together recording this. I think just the, the flow of the conversation is, is really incredible, uh, something that's really engaging. Mike, whom I had not heard of prior to this conversation, uh, is a really engaging speaker. And he talked about a lot of different things that I thought resonated with me, specifically when he talked about finding or creating a life of impact and then how he got to going on that journey. I think that's something I think will resonate with a lot of people, a lot of people who listen to the show. So excited to be able to share that with everyone.
0: You know, for me, one of the insights that I, one of the biggest key takeaways that not only from this conversation, but having become good friends with Mike over the last couple of years is not knowing what is going to come of a current circumstance. Right. And I think just working on your craft and believing that what you're learning now, what you're doing now at a high level will come back. Right. And so, uh, as you will listen for the audience um, and, and learn about Mike's story, you know, something that he did for many years as a job leading uh, worship or, you know, uh, working at a church, all helped him build this really amazing business that he uh, has now. But I think if we were to ask him then, or even him to ask himself then, at the time, did you think that what you were doing, uh, standing in front of a congregation at a church, that a predominantly white church in Connecticut of all places, could lead to this sort of impactful work? He probably would have said, no, I cannot make those, you know, I can't connect the dots there. And so certainly an inspirational conversation, not only for me, but hopefully for you, all of you listening to help figure out what kind of, uh, not just the, I think the branding is the tool, but the impact obviously is the goal in terms of making this world, uh, however you define it, a a little bit of a better place. And so uh, if you want to connect with Mike or follow him on the socials, uh, as we are listening to this, he is at Mike Kim which in and of itself is a pretty ridiculous feat. And I just want to know who he paid and how much to get these wonderful digital assets. But mikekim.com, at mikekim on Instagram. Search for him on LinkedIn. You'll find him there as well. Um, Super excited. And uh, yeah, anything else before we jump to a conversation with Mike, Pat? I think we can roll right into it. Here's Mike. I don't know what show we're on. We were either... On Dears the Americans, or you are the brand, uh, I am sitting here in a hotel room with my dear friend Mike uh, in my city of LA. Although uh, eight days ago, we were hanging out in New York City, which is Mike's hometown. And uh, we figured we'd get together and talk um, probably a, a different and unique format, I think, than either show. And so either whether you're listening to my primary show or Mike's primary show, um, hopefully you get a little bit of a different flavor to understand why we do what we do, how we came to doing what we do and, and how we uh, view our work and, and sort of our friendship and building community and
1: all that. So, um, Mike, welcome to L.A. Thank you. I used to live here when I was a kid. Uh, not good memories. I didn't know that. Yeah. Where, where, what part of L.A.? I have no idea. Um, all I remember from being in L.A. was that like one night, I don't know why I'm starting with this morbid story. Uh, <laughs> my mom got out of the car. We got out of the car. At our apartment building and some, some, they must've been like teenagers or something, walked up to us. And then one of them just like jumped on her.
0: What? And I think they were
1: trying to rob her. And I had a soccer ball. I must've been like six years old.
0: Oh man. And I
1: threw this soccer ball at the guy. I was like, I just chucked it at his head while he was like on top of my mom. And then one of his gang friends just grabbed me by the collar and like threw me to the other side. My sister just stood there. Obviously she didn't didn't know what to do. She was like three or four. And then I remember a, a car just peeling down the street, like, and picked those guys up, and then they left. And did I was they, like, what? Did they take anything? I don't think so.
0: That's awful, Now, man.
1: obviously, she was like a wreck. Yeah. My father was in New York at the time, and, you know, typical oh. for him, at least, was like, oh, not a big deal. You know, you, you get over it. It's a few bumps and scratches. Like, no, your wife just got attacked yeah. in front of her kids. Um, but in subsequent year, subsequent years, I actually have really enjoyed coming to LA and I've ended up here a lot. Um, sometimes by passageway of San Diego, because like I'd have to go to an event in San Diego, but as you know, it's not as easy to get flights out of San Diego. So I would just take the train from San Diego up to LA and then fly back out of here. So I've been here a lot.
0: I've never flown to san diego um always drive or or take the train but i mean i I think that story about your mom though man i think it's pretty poignant and pretty important considering a lot of stuff that's happened and i think um you you posted something on your blog and and shared it widely um maybe it was a year ago you know talking about uh, perhaps maybe not for the first time but i think some of your audience was not surprised again but i think uh relieved to hear sort of uh you in your story. And I think that's what comes to mind in terms of it's been a pretty crappy last two plus years Um, for, for, for many, it's been, as Mike shared, and um, we won't know the majority of these stories that happened to our parents because it is in their nature to keep things to themselves. Um, But, you know, it's, it's, has not been a really, really fun, uh, easygoing time for many Asian Americans. And part of that I think is really contributed in looking at the positive side of it. Um, has given us an opportunity to connect, particularly me and you, which was virtually more than a year ago. And then, uh, like the event that we had in New York City last week, just right. people wanting to come together. And so, let's let's go down your your uh, path a little bit. I know it, and if uh, folks listen to are listening to Mike's podcast, they know his story. But you are now, at least as far as I'm considered, I, I consider uh, one of the foremost experts on personal branding, you speak on stages virtually and in person all over the country. Very high in demand. Wall Street Journal best-selling author. Friends with virtually everybody in the coaching and speaking world. Um, how did that come to be? From a kid that spent some time here and grew up in New Jersey most of the time.
1: Man, yeah, that was a, it. Was a long process. I started blogging in 2013 when I'd gone through some pretty big career shifts. Um, I had spent four years as the music director for a church in Connecticut, which people hear that now, they're like, wait, what? And I was like, yeah, I made the church kind of international because I was one of the the, like five staff members on the church. One guy was black, I was Korean, and the rest were white. So you were always in the brochure? I, uh uh-huh, yep, (laughs) I was on the website, all all the things, right? And um, I left that job, I was married at the time, and my ex-wife, back then, she didn't want to stay in Connecticut, but honestly, truthfully, neither did I. Um, she wanted to go back down to the New York area to look for new opportunities for med school. There's nothing really there in, in Manchester, Connecticut, right? She'd have to go to Yukon and you know, whatever. And then um, I didn't really want to stay in that job. I was like, I'm not sure that leading 30 minutes of music every Sunday for the same 1,000 people is a life of impact. But I didn't know what was next. Um, and you know being asian Americans, right, there are a couple of staples that we're conditioned to believe, like all right you got you want a career you get you have to become a doctor, lawyer, a business person or clergy <laughs> like i, in, I, I in think the, the religious- clergy the the clergy is underappreciated, but it is a
0: um i don't know a pretty recession proof option
1: yeah, yeah. And for Koreans, especially you're not Korean, so it's like okay, all right, you're gonna you're gonna serve God in the church, and that's cool. It's acceptable. It's to, acceptable
0: to to your mom's church friends. Yes, for obvious reasons.
1: Yes, it's not always acceptable to you know parents. Or the kids want to do, it. but that was that was kind of the path. And then um, we end up leaving Connecticut. We went da- down to Jersey, and I missed having a creative outlet. I was for uh, four previous years either. Doing something on stage, like music-wise or speaking. And after that, I didn't really have an outlook. But hold on. How did you end up at the church? Because that's...
0: So you, you grew up in New Jersey, you went to Rutgers, and you were, you said, the only Asian person in a predominantly white church yeah. in Connecticut.
1: Um, how did that happen? That, that happened because um, my youth pastor, who is Korean from New Jersey had a really close friend, the black dude, Eric Peoples. And he was like a mentor to me as well throughout my high school and early young adult years. And after I got married, Irish and I got married, he was like, hey, man, why don't you come up to Connecticut? And that's how it happened, because I was good at what I did. Mm. And unlike Korean churches, they, you know, non-Korean churches sometimes hire people full-time just to do the music. Right. Yeah. So that was a very different world um I was good at it um but yeah when when we left I it wasn't like cut and dry but it was definitely a couple like about two years of transitioning where like I had to just shed that old identity and let it go and I remember distinctly I started looking at blogging because I didn't have a creative outlet then nobody read my blog <laughs> So I was like, maybe I should figure out how to do this the right way. I probably typed something into Google, like how to blog. Some dude came up, his name was Michael Hyatt. He had really good SEO. And then I listened to his podcast religiously when I was driving up and down to the, my new corporate job. I was working as the CM of a company. And um, then he had a membership program, like mm. really low cost, like $30 a month. And I actually did what they told you to do Unlike the other 99% of people. And so that made me stand out in his membership community. Other people started asking me for marketing advice because they knew I was marketing at this other company at my day job. And so that just kind of evolved. I'm giving like a really, really fast track here, but like it just, it just evolved. Like I just started to attract more people and content that I created helped me catapult, um, a little bit further And you know what's funny Like I thought I was behind In those years I was like Oh man I started too late And then I remember When you and I talked You were like When did you start podcasting I was like 2014 20, And you're like Oh my gosh You're one of the early people I was like really I didn't know that I, I mean, thought I was late
0: I don't think People knew I don't know if I knew What podcasting was in 2014 Or was at least a, a daily Or a regular habit Yeah Right I mm-hmm. think you know, blogging, like uh, if you're old school and if you're an Asian American old school Mike's in Mike's and my demographic, you remember Zenga? Uh, yeah. That's Zenga with an X. Yeah. That was the very first form, I think, of public blogging, Yeah, which was just literally us venting about something in most cases. And, um, you know, all these different forms came along. I don't know, GeoCities, Blogger.com, and, or Blogspot. And I, I don't think we realized at the time the impact that self-expression could mean business and opportunity the way that you and I see it now. I think now it's we I mean people are familiar with the words like content and thought leadership mm-hmm. and, you know, using blogs to drive traffic to something. It's I, I think in some weird way we were trained without knowing fully what we were training for, the idea of virtual networking. Right. Like you and I were there and as as adults really for when social media platforms were birthed, um, Friendster and MySpace and Facebook in its infancy, and I think all those things, we we were training and we were building skills, but nobody ever told us that these were transferable and more importantly, profitable or monetizable skills. I think in the past, you you share a story of when you were at the education company, um, you re- it, it clicked that hey, I do all these things. We just never. You just never put it in the sense of, these are skills. You just, that was your job. Or even like you said, at the church, what do you do? You public speak on a stage and four years of doing that, you got paid to hone a craft. And so when did that become crystal clear for you that you could teach and you can be the product instead of leaning on the church music or
1: the academic stuff at the school that you could make your own content? So intuitively, I always knew because I spent so much time in church through high school, um, some guys had it and some people didn't. Like I, like, I don't know. Did you grow up in church? Like, Yes, as a, through, as a dutiful through high school. Yeah. So you'll have like church services and then they'll bring in a guest speaker and the guy just sucks. He's just so boring. Right? I mean right yeah no it's true and you're like okay i know we're watching like we're listening to this guy for the content but gosh the delivery is so bad and then some other person would come in and you just like felt like they had they were from a different pedigree and so i grew up around that Mm. right year in year out and so i intuitively think i i knew something about like there is something about different people and how they're wired or I would maybe say now as a, as an adult, I'd be like, well, they have all different types of energy and blah, blah, blah. Um, but I, I saw that plain and plain in square. Um, I I used to joke with people cause I wrote songs for, for our church and, and other churches and stuff like that. And some of them were pretty good. And I always used to joke like, well, if I put, you know, XYZ famous Christian songwriters name on this song, everyone would sing this song. But <laughs> if it is going to be the same exact song, if it's my name and nobody knows who I am, it's not gonna get as much traction. And that's personal branding. That's a name. That's like J.K. Rowling when, from Harry Potter, releases a book, what, a couple of years ago under a different name. Nobody buys it. I mean, she did well. It still sold like 100 or 200,000 copies. But once she outed herself as, yeah, well, yeah, it was my book. Then millions, Right. personal branding, right? So um, I saw that very early on in the church world. Um I remember distinctly uh this one time in Connecticut when I was there, so this is you know after I'm in my thirties or whatnot, but this is a good story to illustrate it in two thousand six, I think it was there's this huge scandal in the evangelical Christian world because this guy named Ted Haggard, who was the president of the National Association of Evangelicals and who was on the phone with President Bush at the time, like. Uh, multiple times a month or whatever, um, got outed for soliciting gay prostitutes and Mm. smoking meth. Okay. (laughs) A little extreme. A little off-brand. Yeah. (laughs) And this was a, I can't overstate how big of a scandal this was. I mean, it was all over Oprah, HBO, like the whole nine yards, right? And a couple of years into that, like when all the drama was going on, my pastor at the church in Connecticut, who was a big Ted Haggard fan, fan, was like, we're gonna invite him to our church to speak. He's no longer a, a minister. He's operating as a Christian businessman. And I wanna give this guy an opportunity to speak. He's saying that he has changed and he is sorry for what he did and blah, blah, blah. Um, some people at the church did not think that was a good idea, but whatever, right? Whatever. I was like, well, whatever, we'll just do whatever. Whatever you want, right? So, Jerry, this this dude comes into our sanctuary, which only fits 350 people. And I I visited this guy's church in Colorado Springs, which is an auditorium. I think they see 12,000 people in their church. So they basically put on a rock concert and a motivational speaking event every Sunday. Okay? And... I saw the practice room for the music team at their church and it was the size of our sanctuary in Connecticut. <laughs> so this dude comes up and he comes up to the stage and he speaks. And I'm like, even if I didn't know anything about this dude, he just has it. He is meant, whether it was by God or whoever is in charge of all of this, that dude is supposed to reach like millions of people. And he just had that aura. And you meet people like that once in a while. Um, And I think this guy's not nervous. Our sanctuary is the size of his music practice room.
0: Right.
1: You know? And so, like, I just saw that over and over again through those early years. When I went into the business space, I intuitively knew what to do for myself, I knew what I could maximize and what I could kind of like hang my hat on. But that's really how it started. Like, I I think I intuitively understood some of those things, and I was a good teacher. So I had a teaching background. I worked at a after-school academy, helping high school students get into college. Um, that carried over into the way I did church, the way I always, like, wrote wrote material, wrote workbooks. Now, you know, or later started writing marketing material, teaching it. So I was always a good teacher. I, I feel like I could almost teach anything. I just need the bare concepts because right. I understand how to make people understand something in a simple way. And that served me really well. But the branding side of it was was the church world. Well, I, I think it's interesting because
0: um, what you do now and what I do now, again, going back to sort of this stereotypical list of jobs or careers that are acceptable, definitely not on that list. Even though, you know, back when our parents grew up in Korea, like you had, you know, professors and you had TV personalities and you had people who spoke for a living or taught for a living. I just don't think that doing the things that we're doing now outside of traditional institutions, whether they be academic or religious, was really, uh, you know, an option. Um, and, And I'm really curious because I think, People see you now and it's like, wow, like people see the 2022 version of Mike and they're like, wow, he's got a book. He's everywhere. Um, the belief though, like, was it gradual or was it, was there a spark? Cause I think people want to know there's a guy that looks like me. And I felt this way about you before we became friends. I was like, holy crap. Um, and I was thinking on the drive over here, like, when did I first hear the name Mike Kim? And it was on somebody else's podcast. Um, It was about branding or membership sales or I forget whose it was, but I was like, wait a minute, I need to get to know this guy from a content perspective, but also as a friend, because it's, I I think there's a key difference in what you do and what a lot of other uh, coaches, teachers, speakers do, which is balancing content with context because the same playbook won't work for everybody. And when I heard you speak, I was like, okay, as two Korean men, like I hear his message probably a little bit differently because there's some assumed resonance there than somebody who's not like us. And so I'm curious to understand sort of when you had that belief that your stuff was good enough or did you or, you know, was was the jump into entrepreneurship instant after Michael Hyatt's stuff or how was that transition? It was a
1: pretty quick turnaround. So. I was and I don't say this because like I had belief in myself. I just saw what skills were required and I had all of them. So when I went into this blogging space and podcast, I was like, you kidding me? This is cake. I I, like, I would preach sermons. I would host (laughs) conferences. I would, we did entire like um, music albums, like professionally recorded studios in Nashville, the whole nine yards. Like I did all that. <clears throat> and then I came from a teaching background in the SATs, so when I saw this world of content creation, I was like, "Oh, this is a good thing! I'm a strong writer. Uh, I have thousands of hours of more public speaking, ex- like experience than the guy who's a middle manager at some mm-hmm. company and who's trying to break into this space. I also have a ton of coaching experience. We didn't call it coaching; we right. called it ministry." or developing leaders around you, right? But I was talking to people about their problems and their roadblocks. Um, so for me, I wouldn't say that it was just because like I, I was like cut from some different cloth and I always had this like go-getter attitude. I think I did, but in fairness, when I saw Mike Hyatt and some of the people who were around him, I'm like, these guys, they're good, but they're not great. Like I can do this. right? They've just been doing it longer. And I have to learn how to say things in a different way and figure out what I want to say and all that jazz, but the skills were there. Now you actually said something a few minutes ago, and I'm glad we're looping back on this. You actually said something about self-expression. And I think that was one of the hard parts for me because I came from, if you think about a church background, everything you say has to line up with this book. You're not really playing with a big sandbox here. Right. Right. Like everything's got to check out with that book, right? The Bible. So then going in and then all the songs I wrote were for people who can't actually sing. For the regular people who show up at church and you got, you can't do these crazy melodies and hooks, right? So a lot of me, my creativity was funneled or focused or even, dare I say, constrained because of that. Then when I started blogging, I'm like, you can write about whatever you want. Well, really? Don't I need to cite sources? No, let's just, mm. you just share what you know. Yeah. And that was an interesting journey for me. I remember, um, I won't say who it is, but, uh, I, he probably doesn't remember. But when I started blogging after I'd left the church position, some people were not happy that I left the church position, right? They, they, they were like other leaders that I knew. And I'd always been good at connecting with people. And I wrote a blog post about the crippling effect of loaded words. I still remember this. And I was talking about how like, you know, people use these loaded words all the time to guilt guilt trip others, you know, like, for example, in church, like, hey, we're a family. Like, that's not true. You're a church. Like, you're not a family. What, What if you use that word and somebody out there had an abusive family? Like, you're just triggering everybody, right? And so this leader that I knew in my life, since I was a teenager, called me out. And he's like why are you writing stupid stuff like this and i'm like all right he's not gonna be a part of this journey and that was really disappointing to me um we still keep in touch i don't even think he remembers saying that but it was a little hurtful but it didn't stop me i was just like what okay i guess i'll just have to find new people and that's why mike hyatt and that membership community early on in those years, I, I got to meet some of the other teachers he had in that membership site um, who went on to become good influences on my life in those early years. I needed that community because I didn't know anyone else who was doing what I did or wanted to do, especially as a Korean dude in New Jersey.
0: Well, I mean, but that, that what you bring up, I think is something that I've experienced. Um, I, I remember uh, when I, it's almost three years to the day, um, I, I started doing all this practically speaking, or, or I guess actually speaking, cause I got fired and I was like, do I want to go get another job where I probably know that I'm going to be miserable. So I'll either quit or get fired again. Or do I want to jump into this thing where like, I can just be totally myself and have like no HR person pinging me because I said something or whatever. And I remember at the time I had just become a dad of two and then something obviously is a huge, huge part of my identity. And if not my primary identity, um, you know, I, I remember I changed something simple, like, and I wanted to have fun with it. Right. And just like share with the LinkedIn audience that like, you could genuinely just be whoever the hell you want. And so I, cha- part of my LinkedIn headline, not the entire thing read, like, you know, two time data of the year. Right. And I was like, I, I don't have a corporate boss and say whatever I want. A, a business school classmate texted me and he goes, dude, what are you doing? And I was like, what do you mean? And he goes, Your LinkedIn stuff, like, aren't you worried you're not going to get another job? And he used the word we, he used a, uh, uh, what is it? A a third person, personal, whatever it's called. Grammar people can correct me, but like, which made it seem like there were conversations going around other friends from that same life stage or business school.
1: It's probably just him.
0: Or they were talking. (laughs) So like, but it was just like, well, either support me in this moment or don't. Yeah. And and I think it's really interesting because we go through these life things, whether it is childhood church or high school or college or, you know, graduate school is a big like emotional journey together. So like you come out of these places and it's you're not supposed to not everybody is meant to go down the expected prescribed path. But when you deviate from it. It's not acceptable by everybody, but the way that we are socially conditioned, it's a really sad thing to process. And I think it took me a very long time to be an adult and mature about it and be okay with shedding friends. Like friendship isn't this thing that like just grows. It, it's There's a net, right? Like there's a gross and a net. Um, gross and net friends in life should never be the same. You should always lose some friends as you evolve. But I think it took me a long time to learn that. And it's also sort of when you launch a business or launch a thing, your closest people are probably not the target demographic so you don't ask them what they think because they're not going to give you the right answer and now looking at who i'm becoming better friends with and looking at who your friends are even Mike, like that's i think one of the toughest things about this journey is having the belief in what you're doing but losing people along the way having family not understand what the hell you're doing uh, Cause I think for like two years, my parents had no idea what the hell I was doing. <laughs> um, they were just like, all right, Jerry's doing something, you know, his kids seem happy and you know, it's fine. Um, but how, how, tell us about sort of that process. Cause the, the friends that you get to hang out with now, and when you hear other entrepreneurs talk, they say similar things that my primary circle of, you know, my trust circle or my whatever circle is peers and you meet them later in life once you're at their level or trying to help each other and yet there's this you know sort of um sadness and i guess in korean it's more like to me it's more expressible like right like about not having older friends in your life um how, how did how did you balance
1: that i um i think one thing that was really important for me was that i never really held tightly onto the identity that i had professionally So even though I was well-known in my small circles of influence, you know, the denomination that the church was in and I was known as, you know, for being good at what I did with music and all that writing songs at a bunch of churches in in the Northeast saying, I was like, no, that's not me. That's something I do, but that's not me. Um, Your, your assignment can change, but your identity doesn't in many ways. Right. And what I mean by that is, If you and I went to a casting call for a role in a movie, you know, you and I went there here, we're in LA, right? Hollywood (laughs) or whatever. And we're both phenomenal actors. And we show up at that audition to try out for the part of Martin Luther King Jr. It doesn't matter how good we are at acting. If they're shooting a live action movie, like they need a black dude. Right. And so like... Yeah, your assignments can change. That's what, that's what I've seen in life. Like maybe God or the universe or whatever you want to call it, right, has you do something for a few years, but that's not who you are. And so I was always comfortable with being flexible there because I wanted to know who I was. And I, didn't, I knew I wouldn't find it through what I did for a living. But that's such a gift, man, because most people—
0: and I would say we index higher in our community than others. Most people's primary identity is their job and they cannot separate the two. Right. And because they work so hard or the achievement or the pursuit of, right. I am a pharmacist. I'm a lawyer and everything around their life has to revolve around that. Certainly, I think to, to a certain degree, because of. The honor that comes with it, the pride, the ego, the the respect, the societal respect, the you know all that. But it's it's really fascinating to hear you say that because I don't think that's. I, I don't. I think many Asian Americans, uh, maybe in our generation, the younger folks, I think have a few more options because of the internet. But tying one's identity to the job, because think about it, like when you go to a party, um, especially when you're in your twenties. You meet somebody new, you a friend of a friend or yada, 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 right? Like in college, when you meet somebody, it's like, hey, what are you, yada, yada.
1: Majoring in. Or Correct. Writing, yeah.
0: Next, you know, when you're an adult, what do you do? And it's like, why is the thing, like, why should, you know, and again, if you were trying to, you were trying to find some sort of common ground or something to, you know, small talk about, I get it. But more often than not, you got to you know, you got a friend who goes, dude, I just met a girl. I think she's great. I met a friend, you know, he's great. One of the first questions we ask is,
1: what, what did they, they do <laughs> for a living?
0: Right. Or like, yeah. where did they go to school? And right. so I, I I find it really fascinating, almost sort of very uh, a breath of fresh air that, you know, you were able to figure that out at earlier points in your life. Because that's something that I struggled with a lot. And I think they say, you know, uh, higher education provides more options. Like I felt more limited after business school because I felt like, well, an MBA is supposed to do one of like three things. And the thing that I wanted to do wasn't at all those three things at some point. Um, I, I think that's really cool, man.
1: Yeah. I, I, I would say to people who are struggling with that, you just got to do a lot of work on self-awareness. I mean, I journaled for as long as I can remember. Mm. I don't know why, um, but it's been a part of my life. And when you reflect and you can think through things and, and get them down on paper. There's a saying thoughts disentangle themselves through the lips or the fingertips, you mm. either talk it out or you write it out. And, um, actually when I was writing my book, you are the brand a couple of years ago during the pandemic lockdown, I was writing a, about all of the, th- this time in my life, all these transitions were going on and it was a painful time because I also got divorced. So I didn't want to go back in and revisit all that stuff necessarily. It made it hard to write about that season in my life. But I I went and found my journals and I was like, oh man, this is great. It was like a gift from my past self to my current self that I could actually go back and look at, oh my gosh, this is what happened then. Oh, I totally forgot that this is the order. in which I thought that things happened a certain way. And you, you know, we bad memories, right? And I could see... I could see like the progression of how I was evolving as a person when I dug through those journals. Uh, I shared this uh, with my friend Jeff Goins. Like I came across a journal from when I was working at that church in Connecticut. Okay. And when I read these journal entries, I was like, man, I feel bad for this guy. He's like a really like for myself. I was like, he is a, he is really guilty all the time. He beats himself up a lot. And I would write stuff like, oh, I'm not writing better songs or they're not more popular because I don't pray enough. Oh. Maybe yeah. I just wasn't as good of a songwriter, right? But, you know, it's like I'm like yeah. heaping all this stuff on myself. And that was a lot in part due to uh, the church I grew up in as a kid. I look back at it now. I'm like, yeah, that's pretty toxic. I wouldn't want my kids going to a church like that. Um, but we didn't know any it. So you see all these, like, is, is this one black... Leather Brown Journal. And you see all these, like, entries. I'm writing stuff like that. I'm not writing enough good songs, or I'm not really, like, being used by God, blah, blah, blah. And then, like, they start to taper off. And this is when I was starting to, like, you know, my ex-wife and I were, like, starting to think about, like, should we leave Connecticut? And it was a slow process. And the journal entries get fewer and fewer, right? They're much less frequent. Then they stop talking about God at all. And I'm just talking about like uh, this happened today, and you know this, this. I'm a little annoyed at this or that or whatever. And I still remember there's this one journal entry, and um, I think at the church we were like trying to get a new carpet for the sanctuary. This is not a, an important detail in the scope of the world. Yeah. Okay, just get the get the carpet, and we had been debating on it for six months and I wrote in my journal entry, I was like, pastor Dave is an effing idiot and I just in block letters. Right. <laughs> and I read that when I was writing my book and I was like, what the, and I didn't realize that the seeds of that transformation where I was just like, I'm not sure I agree with everything. Um, I'm not sure if it's okay to have my own opinion. Cause I was taught that that was dishonorable. Right. But you, I could see it plain as yeah. day in these journals. So I would just say, kind of going back to what you were saying, like if people are like really, really tied up in their identity. Like, like find a way to become more self-aware. Right. Study yourself. I don't know what I I am today. I don't know what I tell people. Like, what do you do for a living? Uh, like three or four different things, or sometimes right. nothing. I don't. I don't like what's easiest. So I just tell you, I'm an author, but I only have one book. You know, I I don't know what to say. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's okay. I think that society is getting more and more okay with that. Sure. I, I
0: think the multi-hyphenate sort of what do you do or sort of, you know, what do you get to do, I think, is, is the most important part. Um, but let's get down to sort of the, the business side of things. One, um, I'm curious. Eight years ago, what was the actual format of a virtual community that Michael ran? Like, how did you guys – because we, we have tools now. Mm-hmm. There's businesses, many, many businesses around, like, gathering people. Kajabi is one. Popular One, Mighty Networks to bring in communities together. I mean, and the foresight to build a paid community eight years ago, I think is really, really revolutionary for the time. Um, everything's been like hyper
1: sped up until mm-hmm. now,
0: but like how, how did you get engaged in that and find your people through that?
1: I think there was, I think if I remember correctly, there was some sort of portal that you log into that had, you know, the, the course material, you know, every month they had live Q and A calls every month. And then they had forums where people people could post yeah. things within that portal. They yeah. weren't doing Facebook groups or anything like that. I don't right. even think Facebook groups were around then. Right. And so um, I just spent time in in those forums once in a while. And honestly, I mean, I've, I've said this to my audience a lot and the people I coach. I was like, I went into that community and I took one look at how people were showing up and what they were asking. I was like these guys are all suckers. They're no one's doing any of the work. Like it was shocking to me because I'm like an action guy. So I'm like, if I'm paying this $30 a month, which is not a lot of money. And he tells you that month, write this kind of blog post. Well, I'm going to go do it. Yeah. And these other people were like, Oh, I don't know. You know what I'm going to write about. I'm like, just do what he said. I I don't, I didn't get that. Sure. Yeah. So, um, then he started putting me on some of his webinars because that was a good case study. Yeah. And then people were like, who's this Mike Kim guy that Mike, put on, his, Mike Kaya put on his webinar? And I actually wrote blog articles and he would retweet them to his like mm. 200,000 followers at the time, which is huh. a big deal. It was very yeah. encouraging to me. Um, so I try to do that for my community, right? Like I remember what that felt like and like, sure. Maybe Michael didn't think he was that big of a deal, but I did. But I,
0: I've seen you do that. Like I've said it on your webinars, where you bring some of your folks and, like, you know they 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 share a little bit of your story, and and you can tell not everybody's at the same part in their journey just because of, of the way that they are, you know, sharing their business or, or whatnot. Uh, and then we've sort of, you know, went from you started plug, uh, podcasting and blogging in 13 or 14, and and now you've got this entire, you know, uh, business enterprise. Um, how did you build it, and and how do you keep? Reinventing and evolving uh, to stay relevant, because one thing that I think you're really, really good at compared to many other people is you don't do a whole lot of marketing from, in like an advertising perspective. You have your fans, you have your people. There's a lot of referral going on. Your email list is your secret weapon, and you've talked about this personally. You know, like one, it's smart and cheaper to have an email list marketing campaign than buying Facebook ads, mm-hmm. but. The impact that you have and the household name test sort of don't fit, mm. even though when you read your book or you listen to your podcast, you're like, this guy's great. Um, and I'm not saying that because you're my friend, but I think uh, I wanted to be friends with you because your stuff was great. Like, h- How did you build the business? And this is for everybody. Again, content creation is such a, not a buzzword, but it's a word that's here to stay. And there's this really great opportunity in my perspective And not just dancing around and like selling soda or taking brand deals, but really taking what we know to be truth or something valuable information and and being an information broker in a way. And I think that's something that you've done before this wave of uh, the creator economy And, and
1: very curious to learn and want to teach our folks like how did that happen? I think first it started with my mentality towards my job. And I felt like my job was a client and that job was paying me hundred thousand dollars a year. So I was like, if I'm getting, if I have, that means I have a hundred thousand dollar client. I, I just thought like that. Interesting. And so some, some dude's going to come along and be like, I want you to write my website for like $250. I'm like, see you later. Go take a hike. You know? So that, huh. that guarded me from chasing like really, really low, low level opportunities that weren't going to help me. move the ball forward. So that's one thing. Um, Then secondly, I just felt like there was a lot to learn in the, the marketing space, right? Content creation, all that jazz. But I just sort of took like this year by year approach. I talk about this in the book. Um, 2013 was like the year I started following Mike Hyatt. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to blog. I'm going to blog every week, hell or high water. There's a blog post coming out on Monday. And I hit it most weeks. Hmm. I remember like worried four in the morning if there was a typo and a rollover on the bed, open my laptop and my wife was sleeping. Right? And I'm like, oh yeah, there's a typo. And 40 people probably read the post, but I just stuck with it. Like the topics were all over the place. You know, one day I'd be talking about crippling, effect of loaded words in church world. And then I'd be talking about like marketing it was all over the place. Those posts are still on my site in chronological order. You can see Mm. how like all over the place I am. And then 2014, I started the podcast. I didn't think it would be that hard because I came from a speaking background. But then there were definitely some things I had to learn, like how to talk into an empty room with energy. That was weird, Mm. right? Um, And then just year by year, I just added one more critical skill to the set 2015 was the year of launching mastermind groups 2016 mm-hmm. was the year of the product launch i heard all these guys talking about course launches back then so i'm like, all right i'm gonna do one i'm gonna do one myself i'm not gonna hire a team because i don't have that kind of money I'm do it myself i'm a marketer and my designer jason clement and i just ran the whole deal Yeah, and so I learned a lot about product launches and all that jazz through there. And year by year, it just it just snowballed. Like, you know, if that was 2016, then 2017 was probably the year of like like live events. I think I hosted my first live event in New Jersey in 2017, and people like, how'd you fill it? I had I had mastermind groups, I had coaching programs, and I just gave them a free ticket. Or if anyone else wasn't part of those programs, they had to pay to come. And then 2018, I started to speak a lot more. And folks were like, how did you get these speaking engagements? I was like, I held my own speaking engagement. I held my own event. I already had a podcast. And so people were seeing me on stage and they're like, oh, well, he's got a podcast. I I like his podcast. He must be able to speak in front of people live. And that's how it happened. So I started getting all these invitations to different conferences to speak. Um, And then on and on it went, 2019, I think I really started doing a lot of video, right? Instagram and, and stuff like that. I was just getting comfortable with it. I don't have any big video channels. I don't have a huge YouTube following or anything like that. And then 2020 was the year of writing the book and 2021 was the year of launching the book, right? And all these things. So it's easy for us to see somebody out there and think, well, we gotta got to get all nine things at once. Yeah. And Gary Keller, founder of Keller Williams Real Estate, says, I love this quote, success is sequential, not simultaneous. So for me, that was how that panned out. And on a really practical level, dude, I didn't I didn't want to take speaking engagements because when I was still working my job, that would have been like a bunch of vacation days that I had to take off. Right for an engagement that I probably wasn't going to be paid for yeah, and I didn't have anything to sell on the back end. So I was like, why would I go try to be a public speaker? Right. I don't even like really like doing it that much. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to get on a plane and speak to an audience for 45 minutes and then leave. Like I, most people don't know this. I don't like public speaking that much. I think I'm good at it. Um, but I hate speaking to a new audience. Cause Life. then like all the energy is like, okay, are they going to like me? I'm like making my points clear, so, you know, and like who's going to be in the room. Is it a weird vibe? Right. And so I just played with house money all the time. I was like, huh. I'll speak at events with my people. Cause they're right. my people. They already know right. me. So I was strategic about those kinds of speaking engagements that I took through those early years. Interesting, Yeah. And you know, now I don't speak at a lot of events. you know I, I've toned it down. I held my own event, you know, in April, but that was my own event. you know So it, like, I hope that sheds some light for people who are tuning in because you don't have to build a business that resembles what some guru you follow sure does. I have a very unorthodox kind of setup with my business. Right. I don't know a lot of people who do what I do this way. And so, but it works for me.
0: But I think that's totally fine. It right. Is. Like, I mean, I booked like last year, uh, albeit it was during APAM season, like close to or almost $100,000 worth of speaking gigs without a website. Mm-hmm. And people think that's nuts. Because, mm-hmm. like, how do you do that? And so people came to me because I had a consistent message, and like I have built friends for 20 years and never asked them for anything. Also, that you know the timing of the climate was such that companies were all of a sudden looking for Asian American speakers, mm-hmm. and I happened to be there for the opportunity. Um, but I think this notion that you have to follow, even as an entrepreneurial sense, we still go back to this notion of like the shoulds, right? Like, well, so and so said you should build your business this way, or you mm-hmm. should do it in this order, and it's like why are you still, you know, making yourself captive to these rules when you became an entrepreneur to break free from structures that Mm -hmm. provided so much, you know, uh, or environments that put so much structure on you? Um, And and so I I think that's something that I I continue to struggle with sort of like, am I doing it right? Like what's the right way? And, um, and then once in a while I get, you know, I have these amazing conversations with friends like you and it's like, just do whatever you want. Right. Like it's, you know, but just, do it, continue to have like your North star. Right. And so, you know, for me it's like spending as much time and being present for my kids um, so that I, my business isn't maximizing my potential because Mm -hmm. I can't, I don't want to, but something that you mentioned that sort of piqued my interest was when you first started your course stuff, you said you did it on your own. Now you have people who help run your business. Mm -hmm. When did you make that decision? And Would you have done any differently for somebody starting now?
1: Well, a a lot, a a big part of the reason why I did it on my own was because I could. So I was a strong writer, a copywriting background. I was comfortable on video because of my previous work life, right? Yeah. Um, I've rarely hired copywriters in my business. I've written probably 80% of everything I've ever published. Now, that's a lot of writing, And so I've slowed down over the years. Um, So I think every person hires or outsources things based on what their talent is. Right? Um, So I can't give a one-size-fits-all answer. Um, When I made my first virtual assistant hire, I did so because I realized, like, every time I was booking, like, plane tickets to go to an event, I'd go, like, two hours down the rabbit hole and start searching random flights to like Tahiti or like, I wonder how much it costs to go to Australia. And I'm like, why am I wasting this time? And so I, um, I had my first hire. She worked with me about six months. Then she had a baby and then uh, Chelsea came on board who has worked with me now for all these years, like six, seven years. And I remember feeling like this hire is a success because I've not logged into Expedia.com in three months. Mm. And so it took something off my plate. Um, I think everybody has different skill sets. For example, if I was more of a speaker than a writer, I'd probably have to hire a writer. But I just build my business around speaking. Right. Um, and, and that's what's fun about it. Like earlier this year, I took, a month, uh, took five weeks off, June to July. Later this year, I'll take all December off. Like after Thanksgiving, no one's seeing me. I mean, I'm going off the grid, right? I don't know where I'm going to go. Um, but I don't want to see anybody until January. And I set up the business in a way that like, you know, some of the monthly recurring revenue comes from different sources and stuff like that. Mastermind groups are a big part of what I do right now. And I've told the people who are in my mastermind group, we're meeting until November. Some of them have probably assumed, oh, okay, well, Mike's gonna take December off. We'll start back up in January. I was like, we might not. (laughs) And then people might ask, like, what are you gonna do in January? And I would say, What if I decide I want to go to Bali and like live in Bali for six months? Okay. Well, the way my mind thinks is I'm not doing Zoom calls from Bali. That's gonna be terrible time zone difference. (laughs) <laughs> so let me just burn that whole part of the business down. Yeah. Why don't I freelance why don't I, I do freelance work as a copywriter for six months. And I I'm not I'm not committed to any standing meetings. I have an email list. I have um a skill set. I have contacts who would probably love to have me write for them. And I can just sit there on the computer on the beach. And I think people get that in their mind. Like, you can't, you can't, that's like career suicide. No, it's not. No, it's not. I could, I could, I don't know if I want to do that. Right. But I could, like, I see a very viable path forward. If I want to live internationally outside of the United States of America and beholden to these time zones where I have standing Zoom calls, I don't necessarily want to be known as a copywriter. But I could do it for six months, right? So it's like people aren't thinking along those lines. Like they get, like you said, kind of in a routine. And then that routine gets a little bit boring. And then they lose kind of energy behind it and they burn out and stuff like that. And I'm just like, well, if I've got three or four different skills, I can just choose which one I want to major on. Right. For a season.
0: But that comfort comes from confidence and that comfort comes or that. The comfort comes from confidence and the confidence comes from experience. Like last year was a wonky year where I had great success in the first half of the year. And I sort of went into this like one like recovery mode of hibernation during the summer because I was exhausted. Mm -hmm. But this sort of like, I actually have no idea how I'm going to make money the second half of the year. Mm -hmm. And then last year that brought me a lot of anxiety. Mm -hmm. And this year it's like, I'm going to make money, Mm -hmm. but I don't know two things. How much or how? But I'm yeah. very at peace with it because again, I think it's the comfort comes from confidence and the experience of like something will happen. Like for, for me this month in August, technically like I I am going to podcast movement, I went to a nap conference. Those are unpaid gigs. I it's for different reasons I do it. And like I didn't have any like paid speaking gigs in August. And last year I would have freaked out and be like, oh my God, I have a zero month. I took two calls, it's a Thursday when we're recording. Like I had a call on Monday and a call on Tuesday and they're like, oh yeah, can you do something in two weeks on August 31st? I was like, cool. And and you can call it faith or you can call it the universe, whatever you believe in. But but I think that's, you know, like I'm getting better at that too of like, I am valuable to a lot of different people and organizations and I can choose when to turn it on or turn it off because I don't do like outbound calls for speaking. I probably could if I really wanted to like jam my schedule up but a lot of it, like the majority of it is inbound. And so I, I, I mean, one, I get to pick and choose who I want to talk to, but um, this has been fun. I, you know, I, I, we're, I know it's odd because we're, we're sitting in a hotel room and with two microphones and um, <laughs> we're just talking and just, we know that other people will be listening to it. Um, but I do want to sort of wrap the conversation with that blog post that I mentioned at the beginning, which sort of, I don't think your audience had read or heard you talk about some of the things that you had experienced in terms of racism, in terms of the discrimination, Um, the leadership space as we'll call it, or the thought leadership space in the speaking coaching world isn't necessarily diverse Mm -hmm. either from a race or a gender perspective. Mm -hmm. It's generally a bunch of white guys and Mm -hmm. sometimes women, sometimes black and Asian brown folks. Um, And and I, and I was so happy to hear you write and read that because I think uh, not that what it did for me, but I thought that your audience needed to hear it because it added context to the already good content that they were following you for. Um, Why did you write it and what was the feedback from your people?
1: Yeah. So I wrote an article. I think this is the one you're referring to after the shootings happened in Atlanta. Yes. Right. Where all these Asian women were killed and, you know, the massage parlors and all that sort sort of stuff and um i w- i remember just being like angry about that i was like that's like my mo- those these women are my mom's age yeah like they didn't do anything you know someone no need to go in there and shoot people up like come on now well even like they had to work during the pandemic yeah
0: in person uh-huh. because that's the economic yeah. state that we were in yeah.
1: and i i was at an amusement park and um I, I think i opened the article with that story and some kid walked around and we were like hey yeah i'm in because i'm tall right and i was like i'm just gonna punch this kid like what does that even do like what how is that even? and you know what he was black i was like you of all people you know it's just it's just crazy i'm not saying white people are the enemy you, 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 but it's just like minorities like hey can we just not come down on each other if yeah. we're all trying to. And so I wrote the article. Um, it was kind of a vent uh, in that pe- it, it, on that side of things. And the feedback was pretty incredible, positive, almost overwhelming, overwhelmingly positive. I had some school teachers reach out to me and said that they used the blog posts to discuss mm-hmm. some of these issues in their classrooms, which was very cool. That's incredible, uh, yeah. High school and college. Then I had one idiot uh, who I know know personally, and she's just an idiot, just an angry idiot of a lady, and had written something about, like, you know, they shouldn't, like, judge the shooter before all the facts are in, like, something like that. One of those, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, so my whole, because I have a ton of non-Asian friends. In my professional work life, they're 95% non-Asian. Right. Right. So, and I worked at a church for four years that was predominantly Caucasian. Like I know how to move in all these spaces. And so my audience was like ganging up on this lady. And you know, it was just like <laughs> I loved the Instagram threads. They were just like, you are an idiot. You know, that's like, yeah. And it's just that level of ignorance. Like, like that at some point, like, you got to draw the line somewhere. And I never, and you and I have talked about this offline. I've never seen myself as some sort of pioneer trailblazer for the Asian American community. I've not thought about it very much, to be honest. Um, I don't know why. Uh, there are some women who are badasses at public speaking, and but they don't want to just coach women. Sure. I know a few people who are like yeah. that. And they're like, no, I don't want to do that. Like, I don't want to pick up that fight. Yeah. Like I just going to be who I am and let the people find me that who need to find me. But I think as I'm getting older, I'm realizing that there is sort of like, I don't know if I would call it a responsibility or a duty, but there is an opportunity. Yes. Right. To um, grease the skids a little bit and making it easier sure. for somebody else. And so I don't know what that's all going to look like in the next couple of years. I think, you know anytime being a marketing guy anytime you see people draw battle lines like i don't think any of the battle lines are real you just have to pick a team at right. some point and it's just unfortunate that's the way it is um even politics and and that whole deal but um i had friends reach out and say, i had never seen it this way hmm. i had never like the close friends of mine yeah right um who are not asian did not grow up in a minority community who wh- whatever and like, i did not know it was i had i had african-americans reach out and be like dude i didn't know that like it was like this yeah. for you guys and so that was cool um and i didn't want to make that a part of my brand ongoing you know i I just try to solve problems and um help people with, to the best that i can but what's interesting is over the last three years, definitely like I've had more and more Asian people join like coaching programs that I run and masterminds. And I guess that shouldn't surprise me, but yeah. I'm like, one day I just, I was like, wow, there's a lot of Asian people in this group. <laughs> That's weird. Well, But but I think one,
0: it was powerful when you wrote it because like, again, I, I think the the audience weren't following you. So like if I write something similar, like, my audience on LinkedIn and whatever is like, oh, that makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. Like Jerry talks about the identity quite a bit. And, and I think you were able to reach an audience that particularly doesn't get Asian American perspectives mm-hmm. on a regular basis, on TV or media, right? Like we're, we're so siloed, like, you know, thanks Facebook algorithm, right? Mm-hmm. Like we don't get diverse perspectives. And so that was super cool. And, um, and you know, and I, I personally, I got to say thanks because I think it's learning directly from you and observing you and then seeing how you move in spaces and, you know, even, um, I wasn't able to attend your, uh, April event, but I saw the calendar and the agenda and I was like, Oh, that's really smart. You know, like it's a lot of breaks because people don't want to, you know, you don't go to a conference to listen, you go to a conference to meet, Mm -hmm. but then the event organizer or a lot of us with ridiculous insecurities were like, we need to jam pack the agenda with value. Yeah. And so, you know, bring 50 speakers and no breaks. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I'm, I'm learning from you and I think we're, we're at this sort of, uh, long pivotal point though for many people who look like me and you and you know across the asian diaspora to really pick up what we've known and learned and then to use that to uh to help other people and also to help ourselves you know financially and to take care of our families in the long run and i think you know it's getting more and more acceptable and um there's a lot of young people that i talk to that want to do what you do and i think whether it is direct or indirect influence or, you know, uh, just education. Um, it, it's cool. Um, because I think when we look at, you know, the reason, literally the reason I started the years and Americans was I was a big fan of, you know, other interview style leadership podcasts. And so, you know, I listened to Tim Ferriss a lot, Gary Vaynerchuk, Lewis Howes, and I was like, wait a minute, it's like the same guy. And, and when they had guests of color, they weren't able to, especially Asian guests, they were not able to get into the experience part, the context part of relatability. They would just ask the same questions. Uh-huh. And I said, like, wait a minute. You, their life as a refugee is completely integral to how they built their empire. Uh-huh. And you don't ask about that. And it's so so it's experience. And so um, I, I am excited for what, what you're going to continue to build and, um, you know, just, I don't know, having friends in the business and Ultimately, whether we want to admit it or not, because I think it's still a very awkward part of my life, like people coming and thanking you for doing something and being like, hey, I was just trying to make money for my kids. <laughs> but, you know, it, it's it's interesting. But I, I'm glad that we're able to have this format. Um, and any last words?
1: Yeah, I, I I guess I would say, you know, whether these are folks listening on my show or on yours because we're simulcasting this. um Ultimately at the end of the day, uh, you just, you just want to do, you just want to do stuff that you're like proud of. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Right. Um, my life has been defined by a series of creative pursuits, not revenue goals, not, you know, buying XYZ car or XYZ house. I have viewed my life as a series of creative pursuits. Whether I was working at the church and we did the first album, then the second album, then the third album, and then I left there and then went to, you know, the marketing job and we published this and this. And then, you know, I started a blog, I started a podcast, I write a book. And so I know that about myself. While people may think I'm a business coach or a brand strategist, I think I'm just a creator who happens to do those other things well. Um, And I don't really care that much if people don't read my stuff I have to read I have to feel like what I put out into the world is worth me reading. That has always been my standard because i 'm picky with stuff yeah. and I know when it 's not that good and when it 's good right at least for myself and at 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 the end of it like you just do the things that you feel like you can say, all right, I'm proud I did that. Like, I, I, can I just, think that's important. And that's it, you know.
0: A lot of people chase money for, you know, things. I mean, we're, we're in the shadows of the NFT rug pulls of people leveraging their followers to make a quick buck and not stand behind it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the most impressive things about you, Mike Kim, is that you own MikeKim.com and you are at MikeKim <laughs> on Instagram. Instagram which are, which is, uh, real estate gold. So that's where you can go find Mike, um, at Mike Kim or mikekim.com. You can find me at Jerry Wan, but on Instagram, you got to add my middle initial because there's a squatter. Um, I'm trying to get it back, but at Jerry J. Juan on Instagram or find me on LinkedIn. If you LinkedIn search Jerry Juan, I'm pretty sure I'm the first person that pops up. Uh, follow us, connect with us, let us know how we can help you in your business journey. And, um, especially if you're getting started down the path that Mike has been on and that I am on um, you know, we'd love to have others join us along the way. So thanks Mike. Yeah, man. Um, enjoy the rest of your time in LA and uh, it's kind of a nice trip. I get to see you twice in 10 days. So uh, <laughs> to everybody, thanks for listening and see you next time. See you next time. I want to thank Mike for joining us and making time to record uh, this conversation. on what was a, a very busy trip for him to LA. Again, you can find all about Mike and his work at Mike Kim on Instagram, MikeKim.com. You Are the Brand is the name of the book. You can buy it on Amazon. You can listen to the audiobook. Um, it's got a lot of cool stuff. And um, make sure you sign up for his email list. That's where he generally engages with his audience and and has opportunities to work with him and to follow him as he travels the country and the world to speak and to deliver content. You can find us, the show, at DearAsianAmericans.com or at the Asian Americans on the Instagram. Personally, you can find me, Jerry, at Jerry J Wan on Instagram or learn about more about my work at jerrywan.com. And
1: Patrick, where can people find you? People can find me at Patrick and the World on Instagram. You can also find me uh, slash Patrick in the World on LinkedIn, where I do a lot of posting and I'm pretty active there as well.
0: If you made it this far to the end of the episode, please do us two favors. One Share this episode with somebody who you think could benefit. And two, sign up for our newsletter. It's bit.ly slash DAA newsletter. That's bit.ly slash DAA newsletter. Sign up for our weekly newsletter where you'll get episode updates and a whole lot of amazing content that is being written and edited by our amazing newsletter director, Ian Lee. And Patrick is an incredible and important part of the newsletter, part of our business as well. Uh, stay tuned to Theories and Americans. we got some exciting, exciting stuff coming on. Uh, We're likely going to be traveling the country again to deliver to you a series of night markets and going to be uh, partnering with a a wonderful sponsor for a series of really exciting episodes towards the end of the year. So uh, continue to stay safe, happy and healthy, y'all. This has been your host, Jerry Wan, along with our producer, Patrick, and we will see you next time.